We would like to welcome you this morning to Mission Bible Fellowship as Pastor Stuart Guthrie brings a message from God's Word. We hope it challenges, encourages, and strengthens your walk with the Lord. Father, it is our delight to come to your house and to worship and to serve you through the teaching and preaching of your Word and through worship. And God, we just pray that it's all honoring to you. Lord, you know in my inabilities. And I ask that you fill me, that you empower me with the Holy Spirit, that I might be accurate with your word and with its truths. And Lord, there be any error that comes out of my mouth, Lord, I pray that you would dilute it and dissipate it, and that your truth would speak through. God, we live in a time and in a culture that's difficult to preach the Word of God without hurting, without offending, and without stirring people up. And I pray this morning that you make that not my purpose, but that we see clearly, Lord, what it is that you are communicating through your Word. It is a blessed time in this church. And it is a joyful time, a time to celebrate, a time to rejoice. And I pray, God, that that's what we would do as a church as we look at your word this morning. Lord, I ask for your filling and your empowerment in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, many of you may not be aware, maybe you are, that uh, Gary Rice, one of our elders here at Mission Bible Fellowship, is stepping down from his office of leadership. Now that, don't want you to come as a shock or as something like he's going to leave the church or he's upset or he's mad. We believe that Gary has uh, served well and he has been a uh, very viable part of this ministry at Mission Bible Fellowship. And, And we believe that Gary is just tired, wants a break, and that's acceptable. You know, the position of, of eldership, uh, as far as leadership goes in the church, doesn't necessarily mean it's a lifelong commitment. We will always view Gary as an elder. He will always be qualified as an elder unless he fails in some aspect of his life between now and when he feels regenerated and ready to go back to work. But we want to thank you this morning, Gary for your service to this church and your dedication and your faithfulness to God. And so if you will, give them a round of applause this morning. We believe that Gary will still be very involved in the church and we thank him for what he's done and we pray that the Lord gives him this time of refreshment and and time of encouragement to to grow Him more and more into the image of Christ until we see our Lord and Savior face to face. Um, I I would ask Gary, if you would, at the end of the service, if you'll stand at the back doors with me and and let everyone have the opportunity to come by and and tell you what what you mean to them and and just how much you have affected their uh, walk with the Lord in, in your service here at Mission Bible Fellowship. Well, today is a a special day as we have the opportunity to introduce Tom Morris as a new elder, the newest member of the elder board at Mission Bible Fellowship. Tom has been a faithful member of this church, at least I know since I've been here, and I'm sure that you know of his faithfulness prior to me coming. He's been through the hard times of this church, and he's been also through the good times. And today on behalf of Tom, I want to look at what the Bible teaches about biblical eldership and the qualifications that we see in Scripture that allow us to appoint a man such as Tom, such as our elders that exist now. And so, today is a special day. It's an exciting time in the life of this church. It's a great picture of what what God is 
has done through His work here and what God is doing here today. The work that, that God has done in the lives of people throughout the years of Mission Bible Fellowship. You know, as, as a pastor, as a new pastor coming in a year and a half, I come into something that existed. Something that had been ran for many years prior to me ever knowing any of you or being a part of this congregation. And, and I can see the effect that previous pastors had in the lives of the people here. And it's an encouraging time as we see the ability to choose from, from men in the congregation that are qualified to meet the expectation of eldership. My hope as the pastor of this church now is that many years after we have gone down the road, whether it be here or somewhere else, wherever God would have us, that God will use all that has taken place during this time and our time here to continue to grow His people and to prepare the lives of His people to fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ. And it begins with the leadership of this congregation. And that's really a great place to begin to look at our text this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-7. to Before we get into that, before we look at that verse, I want to go over the context. Just a real short, brief overview. Paul, I want you to understand, is writing this letter to Timothy in Ephesus. The church has had some major issues. Needless to say, things have seemed to have gone wrong. And now Paul is here trying to straighten out what's taken place and the issues that are at hand. Clear back to chapter 1, we see uh, uh, leaders are not committing themselves to the doctrine that they had been taught. In chapters 2 and 3, we, we also see instructions concerning the church. We see in chapter 2, his desire to express the importance of prayer. We see his desire to express the roles of women within the church. And then as we approach and we come into chapter 3, we, we come into the qualification for church leaders. We see the qualifications for elders and we see the qualification for deacons. Now the reason I think this passage is appropriate and important for all of us today, not just those that are here that, that may say, well, I'm not qualified to be an elder or you know, I'm not even really interested in being an elder. It's important for all of us, not only those who are with leadership in the body, not only those who aspire to, to be elders, but this message will be for all of us. Because whether you are a church leader or not, it does not matter that we need to understand these qualifications should be something that all of us should aspire to. Because they are good and acceptable in the sight of the Lord. And these are the kind of characteristics we want to outline our lives. You will most likely lead eventually in some capacity in your life. Though you may never be an elder, though you may, may never be a deacon, you may lead somewhere. You may be called to lead a Sunday school class. You may be called to, to lead your children. Yeah, you may be young now, but later down the road when you get married and you have children, you will be called the spiritual leader of your home. It will be your responsibility to lead them. And these qualifications will give us an encouragement to do that in a godly manner. You may be called to lead in the form of a business. Some of you own your own businesses. Some of you are higher up in your businesses and therefore you're leaders. And so these qualifications will be important not only for the leadership of this church, but qualifications that will help you in your daily life. But these are qualifications that are required for men of God in this church for the office of elder. Now all men that lead are not perfect. And I'll be the first to admit to you this morning that as your pastor, I'm not perfect. I have failures, I have struggles. And as, and as I read through this text and, and I preached this message to myself, I had to evaluate where am I in the scope of all of these qualifications? 
And it gave me new insight. It gave me a new thought process of, of, of how to deal with things in daily life as a leader and an elder in the church. Will these leaders make mistakes? Yes. But Paul is going to list a series of Christian characteristics that we must follow in the selection process of bringing elders to the leadership. So without delay, let us buckle up this morning our bootstraps because this ride could get bumpy somewhere along the way. If you will, turn with me this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I have slides this morning that will help you. I hope you can see them well enough. They always look different on that screen than they look on my computer. But I think you can still read that. But let us, let us look there at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. It says this, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own home, his household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside of the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. There are three observations that I want us to look at just within the first verse of this text. It says here in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. The first observation that I want us to see is that the office of eldership is a position qualified for men. The second observation that I want us to see is the office of eldership is a position of work. And thirdly, the office of eldership is a position to be desired. First off, let us look at the office of eldership as a position for qualified men. You may ask the question this morning, why do I say that biblical eldership consists of men? Now please understand, not everyone in evangelical community agrees with these views. But in the church history throughout time, these are the common views that are held. And what I like to say is if we see something new, it ain't true. But I hope that over the next few moments as we look at a few of these things, you will allow your ears to hear and not shut me out. Though you may disagree, it's okay. But don't shut me out. Allow the Word of God to speak for itself. Now, I'm not a man that is disrespectful of any woman. I hold you women in the very highest regard. And so does God. Scripture is not cloudy on that subject. God sees you as equal to men. But just because we are equal doesn't mean we obtain the same roles and responsibilities within the church of God. God has given you, ladies, different roles that are vital within the body of Christ. Vital. And really, just because you're equal doesn't mean that you're less as far as roles go in the church. That don't mean we're talking about cooking and cleaning, guys. And taking care and changing the diapers. While those things may be a vital part of your life, that's not what we're talking about. It's a role within the church and the household of God. These roles that God gives women 
are divinely given by God Himself to accomplish His purpose, to edify the church of God and serve in the office of eldership. And it's not to serve in the office of eldership as part of that role. Now we're talking about the office of eldership and the, and the preceding things that Paul goes into talking about the office of deaconship later on, but today we're going to focus simply on biblical eldership, not biblical deacons. Now you may say, Stuart, well, I don't agree with that. That's very disrespectful. That's, that's kind of disrespectful to me. And I can do anything as a woman that a man can do. You know what? You're probably right. Well, God has made it to where you can do certain things and I can do certain things and we can't do everything that each other can do. But I would agree to you that you can do just about anything a man can do. And I would go as far as to say that there were things that, that you could do as women that I couldn't do. And to be honest with you, I don't want to do I don't want to give birth to a child. Praise God you're a woman. Praise God I'm a man. And I'm, and I'm happy He gave me this role. But you're very respected by the men of this church, by God, and throughout Scripture. God has placed different roles for women than He has men. You say, well, I'm still not, I'm still not tracking with you, Pastor. I still don't agree. Well, let us just go backwards here just for a moment. And look at, at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says something here that I promise you is not popular in the 20th century. It's not popular in 2013 for sure. But I want you to understand this morning it's biblical. And just because it's not popular doesn't make it not biblical. One of the hardest jobs as an elder, as a leader in the church, as a pastor, is that we are called to be true to the Word of God. And sometimes that means stepping out in faith and trusting in Scripture other than the culture. He says here in 1 Timothy 2.12, But I, will, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, is Paul simply saying that women, you need to sit there and shut your mouths? No. That's not his point. What he's speaking of when he says is to remain quiet, he's speaking on behalf of teaching men. He's, he's speaking of teaching men. We have seen some of the most faithful people in Christian service are women. They serve. Many women have been a part of saving churches when all of the men have failed to do their role in which God has called them to do and lead, and women step in to do the job. Our respect for women is high, but we still believe Scripture is the authority in which we look at and evaluate truth. And it's obvious in Scripture that we as men and you as women are equal, but we've been given different roles. This may not settle you well with you this morning, but I want you to consider Jesus Christ. I want you to think about His relationship to the Father. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says this, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of woman. And God is the head of Christ. You see, Christ is God the Son. He is, he is the fullness of God in the flesh. And He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, 18-20 tells us that. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all of the commandments. And lo, I'm with you always unto the end of the age. Jesus Christ had the authority. All of it in heaven and on earth. But yet, we see Christ in His humanity assume a subordinate role of a submissive man. 
He didn't complain about it. He didn't fight over it. He didn't say, I don't need God. I can take care of it. I've got all authority in heaven and on earth. What do we see Christ doing in Luke chapter 22, 42? Was He forcing His ability to change things? Or was He submitting to the Father's role in His life? When, when, when we see Jesus there in the garden in agony, because He's about to suffer and He knows what's going to take place on the cross, is He is fixing to bear all of the sins of humanity. And He's sweating blood. And He says this, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Not My will, but Your will be done. You see, the Father and the Son had a special relationship. And though Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, we see Christ submitting to the headship of God. There is Scripture after Scripture that supports that we as men and women have different roles and though we are viewed equally, those are different. Paul has here on the forefront of his mind that this, that it's men that are to assume the office of eldership and not women. He will even say in just a moment that an elder must be the husband of one wife. And I challenge you this morning to show me a woman that can be the husband of one wife and I'll show you a woman that can preach biblically. Scripture is clear. In culture and in a time where people twist God's Word to make it mean what they wish, it's difficult. But God's Word in the greatest form, in the original Greek language, helps us understand these matters. And while some of them are difficult, which we'll look at in just a minute, some of them are very clear. It's not because you ladies are not competent enough. It's not that you are inferior to man. It's because God has set roles for all of humanity. And Paul is making it known maybe there had been some women that were assisting the role of leadership. Maybe they were teaching men and he's trying to straighten it. I don't know the, the deal, but all I can say is it says here, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Secondly, we see that the office of eldership is a position of work. He states here that it's a fine work. It's, it's fine. It's honorable. It's a, it's a noble position to be desired. There is no other task that I can think of that has been given unto men that is more important than the task of elder, pastor, teacher. Now I want you to understand this morning that when the word elder or overseer or bishop or pastor is spoken of, it's all the same word. It's all the same word. Our elders are pastors. I'm just the teaching pastor. And so it's important that we all understand our elders, that Rob and that Bill and that Shane and that Tim and that Gary are all pastors. And Tom, you are now considered an overseer of the church as well. And your role will be much different than it was as a deacon. And Scripture points out that this is a position in which gives all of us a higher responsibility in His work. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so we need to understand that this position is work. If any man aspires to the position, let him not think it's an easy job. Studying the Word is a difficult task, a daunting task. 
and can take hours upon hours upon hours to understand what the original writers were trying to communicate. Matter of fact, I was up until 3 a.m. Friday night battling over this text. And I didn't leave the office last night until 2.45 this morning battling over this text. Trying to understand every word and what it communicates. It's a daunting task to handle the Word of God. It's work. It's work to be consistently concerned for the, for the spiritual well-being of this body of Christians. And we, the people of the congregation, need to be in prayer for the leaders of this church. Because they do have a task ahead of them. As we try to encourage, try to strengthen, try to grow, try to teach, try to, to continually to pray for the people in this congregation, in this community. It is work. To dispute, to settle disputes between brothers and sisters in Christ. And trying to keep people looking up to God in times of struggle. It's work trying to win souls for Christ. It's a daunting task to continually share our faith and to be continually put down and to be continually mocked. It's work to get to dedicate your time away from family on a monthly basis. And every month, sometimes hours and hours and hours. The office is not about clout. It's about commitment and sacrifice. And if someone is looking for an easy task, the ministry is not a place for it. Because there is, is a spiritual exhaustion that comes about in a way that you may have never experienced before. And the burdens of the people will weigh heavy on your heart in the ministry. The task is very difficult. Second Timothy 4, 1-5, Tom, is one of my favorite verses. One of my life verses as a pastor. This was the verse that my pastor preached when I was ordinated into the church. And it's a, it's a passage that I encourage all of you leaders to memorize and to hold in your heart. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, correct, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For a time will come when... They will not ensure do or sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teacher in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But listen to what it says here, leaders. But you, you elders, you pastors, you overseers, you bishops... You be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Endure hardship because I can tell you it will come. It will come when you deal with spiritual issues. People will bite you. They will fight you. And it is a time in which God commands you to endure the hardship for the work of the ministry. The third thing we want to look at is the office of eldership is a position to be desired. He says it's a fine work to be desired. It simply boils down to this. The, worker of an, the work of an overseer is a very demanding position to acquire. That is, if you do the job. It can be very relaxing and not very difficult if we don't ever do anything as leaders in the church. But if we follow the commandments of God, of consistently studying the Word, consistently praying for the needs of the people, if we consistently do those things, preaching and teaching the Word is a daunting task. 
No man may enter by it basely, sorely, on their own desire. And I would say that one needs to be set apart for, by God to have the desire to serve in the capacity of elder in the church. And the leadership of the church affirms or rejects that calling based off of how man's life measures up to the standards of God. And this is where we begin to now look at the qualifications individually that God sets for man desiring this position of leadership in the church. Paul gives us 15 qualifications that we are to look at when determining an elder for position. These 15 qualifications can be broken down into three main sections. The first section is elders, the elders' personal qualifications. We see that in verse 2 and 3. The second section is the elders' family qualifications, which is in 4 and 5. And then in 6 and 7, thirdly, we see the elders' church's qualification. Here in verse 2 it says, An overseer must, then must be above reproach. The first characteristic mention is that elders should be above reproach. Notice that it doesn't say sinless, but instead it means blameless. Not being able to be held is what it means. It would give the analogy of a man that was not be, would not be able to be arrested because he had nothing against him. And I want to ask you this morning, do you feel that way? Can you look at your own life and can you say, I, don't, I feel blameless? Or that I'm without fault. And if not, whether it's church leadership, leadership in the home, leadership in the, in the workplace, we have areas to grow. The elder must be above reproach. He says next, the husband of one wife. Now I want you to understand that this is a very debated verse in the Bible. I could preach a multitude of sermons just on this one phrase. The husband of one wife. Now, I want to take some time on this because about three days of study went into this one verse, this one phrase, the husband and one What is Paul trying to communicate to the church at hand? And I want you to know and understand first off and foremost, there are godly people on every view, every side. And my view may not be your view, and your view may not be my view, but as a church body, we need to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And I think we do that well as the leadership of this church. Because as the leadership of this church, we don't all agree on this view. But that's okay because I love my brothers, they love me, and we serve God, and we allow this to be a minor issue, not a major issue. It's not a salvation issue. But what does Paul mean when he says the husband of one wife? Let me state the facts first. The facts are in the original Greek, the terminology reads a one woman man. That's what it reads. A one woman man. It's very well translated the husband of one wife. That's not an incorrect translation. The King James Version didn't miss it. The New American Standard didn't miss it. 90% uh, of the Bibles translated the husband of one wife. They didn't miss it. It's a good translation. But when we read it in the Greek, the way it's laid out, the way it's structured, it's a one woman man. Now, I've spent countless hours on studying this, just what it can mean. And I found that there are typically five camps of thought where people stand on this verse. And I'm going to list all five camps. I'm going to explain them to the best of my ability with the amount of time that I have considering there are 13 other qualities that we must look at within this sermon on top of this major issue. And they are all just as vital as the other. So, you will have to determine for yourself what Paul meant. I will try to explain it the best I can. What he meant when he said a one-woman man. I will tell you what I believe and why I believe it, but ultimately you have to decide for yourself what this means. I still struggle with this verse. 
And it's a very touchy subject. Above everyone here that knows that, it's me. I know that well. And I want to be sensitive to each one of you, but I want to be true to the Word of God more than anything. And by no means do I have the, all of the problems of the world figured out, but I will state my view and the others as well. And so with that said, let us look at it, the first view. The first view that we are to consider is the Roman Catholic view. Their view is that when Paul says the elder must be the husband of one wife, he is saying that they are to be married to the church. This, this is a qualification for them for, for pastoral, priest or elders or, de or overseers. And so what, what the wife means is the church. And the congregation, so to speak, becomes their children, which they teach and raise and, and bring up spiritually. Now, I don't agree with this view because of this. Number one is it completely spiritualizes the text. And good hermeneutics don't spiritualize the text. We call that eisegesis. That, that's what we call when we read in the Scripture, when we put our own presupposition, our own agendas, our own biases into or on the text to make it mean what we want. The second view is uh, marriage requirement view. Well, it says the husband of one wife, so therefore it pre-concludes that, that a man must be married in order to be a, an elder in the church. Doesn't that make sense? The problem with that view is this. Paul wasn't married. Jesus Christ wasn't married. So that doesn't make any sense. 1 Corinthians 7.8 states that, that Paul was a single man. And if Paul wasn't married, that would disqualify him, qualify him from leadership. And so we know that's not possible. And more so, Christ never married, and so that's not what He could have meant. Third view that we can look at is the polygamy or bigamy view. Well, most people, it, it, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, it's a very attractive view. It, it takes a lot of pressure off me as the pastor. It takes a lot of pressure off of individuals because it's speaking of polygamy. Therefore, it was a cultural thing, right? You must be the husband of one wife. In order to be a deacon, or I mean to be an elder in the church, you couldn't be married to multiple wives. Well, that's not a problem in our culture. So the qualification really doesn't make sense for us. The problem with that is that through my studies and through the studies of others' teachings, I find that it was not a normal practice during the church age. It was in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. John MacArthur says this in his commentary, that polygamy wasn't even a real problem in Ephesus. And it was uncommon in the Roman society. And so really it would, make it, uh, it would seem unnecessary for Paul to even state that polygamy was the thought at hand because it was not even an issue. It would be saying, guys, listen, Tom, you cannot be an elder if you participate in polygamy. Polygamy is not an issue in our culture, so that wouldn't make any sense. But there are well-respected godly men who hold that view. But I don't buy into it. In a recent sermon that I listened to on Search the Scriptures by Dr. Carl Brogy, he stated this, Polygamy and or bigamy were outlawed by the Roman government in the first century. It was illegal. Just like it's illegal in our day. And so therefore, under the, at least under the New Covenant, I know Jesus didn't accept polygamy because His view on divorce and remarriage. If a man was a bigamist or polygamist, he would not be considered for the qualifications of eldership. He would be considered for the qualifications of church discipline. And so with that in mind, that makes no sense that he would state that if it was outlawed in the first century. Now the fourth view is probably one of the most popular views 
a respected view, one that seems to make sense at the forefront. And that view is being faithful to your present wife. I don't know if that's what the view is called, but that's just what I called it. Because that's what it is. It's being faithful to the, to the wife you are with now. They take it, they mean it, a one-woman man. That means you are being faithful to the woman you are with. And it fits kind of into the last section, and so to speak, because it talks about being married to one woman at a time. And in this view, Paul said that the husband of one wife or one mom and man, Paul would be talking about being faithful to the wife that you have at the present time. You could be on number five, you could be on number two, you could be on number one, and as long as you're faithful to the one you're with now, then you are qualified. Again, there's a great number of people who hold this, men that I respect, men that I look to for, for advice and answers. I, I tell you, I, I struggle with this view. And, and let me explain to you why. Is... This view points to the fact that you can be with one woman. Okay, just for an example, I'm a married man. I've never been divorced. I'm married to my first wife. But even as a married man, I could still not be a one-woman man. I may have eyes for your wife. I may have eyes on the internet. I may have eyes on the computer for other women and desire for other women. And even as a one-woman man, I may not be a one-woman man because of my purity, because of my lust, or whatever the case may be. And so that viewpoint points to that idea that says, hey, listen, you can be married to one woman, but if your eyes are not for your woman, if your desire and your love is not for your woman, then you're not a one-woman man and therefore you're disqualified. The, the, the thing that I find difficult with this view is, is this. Who are these qualifications for? Are, are the qualifications written simply for the, for the, believer, for the people reading it? Because I know as, as, as an elder board, we discuss the life of Tom. We take the Scriptures and we look at the qualifications and we ask the question, is there anywhere in Scripture that Tom is disqualified? And so we use these qualifications as a standard and a measurement in which to judge if a man meets the qualifications to be an elder in the church. Because that's why I ask the question, who are they for? And I think they're for both. I think for, they're for us, for God to speak to us through His Word. We know that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training, righteousness, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for all good works. They're, they're, they're for us, but they're also for us to judge a man whether he is qualified for leadership in the church. And if that's the case, if the view is that, well... You must be dedicated to the wife you are with now. The problem with that view is, how do you know if I'm dedicated? You don't know my heart. I don't know your heart. I can't put that down as a viable qualification that you are a qualified man because I can't read your heart. I don't know what you look at on the internet. I don't know what kind of TV shows you watch and, and the lust that goes through your minds. And therefore, it, it's, it's hard for me to understand that view. Because only you know what happens inside and only God knows what goes through your mind. Now, I respect the view because I think it makes sense in some ways. There are countless questions that precede this view. You know, I struggle with... If, let's just say I had a brother, his name was Bobby. And Bobby got married at a young age, 
And about two weeks after he got married, he got divorced. And then Bobby lives his life. He finds the Lord. He starts going to church. And and Bobby steps into the church. It's sitting in my notes, by the way, so I'm just talking with you now. I hope I agree with everything I'm going to say here. But, But Bobby becomes a Christian. God changes his life. And Bobby begins to go to church. And he meets little Susie in church. And, and little Susie and him knock together real quick. And they're happy and they like each other. And next thing you know, they're getting married. Now Bobby and Susie are married. They're happy. He serves in the church for the next five years. Marriage looks great. Everything looks great. The church then is in a small community. And all of a sudden the church needs an elder. And they go, how about Bobby? Bobby's a one-woman man. He's dedicated to his wife. But let's say that he becomes an elder and he serves for three years. And Bobby finds out that Susie's been having an affair for the last three years of his life. I want to ask you the question, is Bobby disqualified? Is he disqualified? And at what point is he no longer disqualified? Well, obviously we could say he didn't manage his family well. Well, maybe it wasn't his fault. You see, the the problem is, is there's so many questions to ask with this view. Is it okay to be divorced ten times? I mean, honestly, let us look at this. If we are born again and we're Christians, obviously there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But does that affect our eternal serving in the church? That's the question at hand. It's a difficult one. And I want you to understand that I love you guys and I love you brothers. And I'm willing to serve in the capacity in which God sees me, but I, 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 can't, I can't buy into this view. You may, it's okay, I'm okay with it, I respect your view, we'll agree to disagree. Because there's countless questions that, that, that precede this view. And though they're godly men, and I respect them, I just don't agree with them. And that's okay. My view is not necessarily the view of this church by the way. So the last view that we'll touch on is the, is the married only once view. Now it seems that from the church fathers, historically, from the church fathers until the middle of the 20th century, there was one unanimous view on this passage. When Paul says a husband of one wife, it meant that he's only married one time. Now again, if something's out in the last half of the century, if it's new, it ain't true. Now that makes sense to me. This, this position makes sense to me. I don't necessarily really desire this position because it, it comes with multitudes of questions and issues and concerns. And it almost feels degrading sometimes to hold this view. But when I read the husband of one wife, seems to me to be saying married only once. Now this view really even falls into two camps. There's more of a restricted view, and there's a lesser restricted view. I don't, I don't buy into the restricted view, I buy into the lesser restricted view. The restricted view would state that when the wife of the, of the husband dies... When she passes on, when she goes to be with the Lord, that that would disqualify for him from serving again because if he got married, it would make him a two-woman man. Now there's two reasons why I don't buy into that view. 1 Corinthians 7.39 says, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead and she is free to remarry, to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So, so it doesn't seem... Plausible that, that Paul would encourage people to get married again if later would disqualify them. The second issue that I have is right here in the book of First Timothy, chapter 5, verse 9. And it says this: A widow is to be put on the list 
only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one husband. Now, this is the reversed statement that we see in chapter 3, verse 2, a husband of one wife. Here we see a wife of one man. And so whatever's meant in chapter 3, verse 2, is meant in chapter 5, verse 9. The problem that I see is verse 14. We see Paul encouraging the younger women that were, that were not yet of 60 ages or older to be remarried and to have children. The problem with that is if he was encouraging them to do that, then later in life when they're 70 years old, 80 years old, and their husband dies, they would be disqualified from the widower's list, which was financial support for widows who didn't have a husband. Because in, if, if we hold that view, then they would be considered a two-woman man, or two-man woman. And so I don't think that's what he means. I don't think the restricted view. Now there's godly men that have been expositors, some of them the greatest of the 20th century, that hold that view. And again, it's a difficult and it's a daunting task to stand and say, this is the correct view. And I will not do that. Because you have to determine for yourself what the Scriptures are saying. And allow the Holy Spirit to teach your heart. I'm just simply telling you, this is my view. The lesser restrictive view that I hold is when Paul says a husband of one wife refers to a man that has not been that has not been married a second time through divorce. This seems to be the most simple and logical reading of the text. Now it's by no means the most popular view in our culture especially when 50 plus 50% of people in America are getting divorced. And if, and if, and if 60 or 70% of, of people are divorced, guess what? When we reach out into the community and we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are saved and they come into the church, the very things that they bring in are the very things that are out there. And so it's not a popular view in the church. Again, my brothers are loved dearly on the elder board and we just agree to disagree. And that's okay. There's viable views that you have to choose from. Paul is writing this letter, we must remember, in the, in, in the middle of a culture that is covered in divorce, much like ours today. It's at the forefront of his mind. They're, they're, the harlots are plentiful. The, the temple prostitutes are plentiful. They're abundant. And the issue has to be at the front of his mind when he says this. To me, it seems clear. And with my view of marriage, and, and I think Paul and Jesus' view of marriage. Now, I don't believe that God is down on divorced people by no means. Because even in my own view, I say that's not fair, God. Well... God doesn't necessarily have to be fair. He sets standards that are not fair all the time. It's not fair that, that, that I can stand up here and say women can't preach. They are very capable of preaching. There are many women who preach every day on television and in churches. But I don't think it's biblical view. And I don't think it's necessarily fair, but God set roles. And who am I to say God's not fair? I don't think God's down on divorce people. I don't think that's what Paul is saying if indeed he's speaking to those who are divorced and remarried. I think it's important for, for all of us to study this text and to understand these, these views and to, to, to struggle over them. Again, my view is not the view of this church, but we as an elder board, we're mature enough to major on the majors and minor on the minors. I think that this view is a legitimate view. And my, and my view is intertwined with my view on marriage. But you have to be convinced by the Holy Spirit your own view. And what Paul is teaching here, look at all of Scripture. Look at all of Scripture in light of this issue. To me it's a viable view that's out on the table. People are able to know my past. 
But there are struggles that I have with this. If we look at every, and I'll throw these out on the table, I'll be open with you. Some of the struggles that I see with this view is every qualification in here is the present tense. Well, not in the present tense, but it's focusing on the now. Because he even starts with, an overseer then must be. He must be. Not he must have been, but he must be. You see the problem? If we look at anger, if we look at self-control, if we look at all of these other issues in light of that, why all of a sudden when it comes to divorce do we go backwards? There's problems that I see with this view. There's problems I see with all of them. And so you have to struggle through and understand, I'm not there yet. This is the view I hold. This is what I believe. This is what I'll teach. This is how I'll run my part of the ministry in which invest in my life into people. Because this is the view I've bought into. You have to buy into your own view and trust that God and His sovereignty is above all of our understanding. And where God's not perfectly clear, I can't be dogmatic about it. And neither can you. And so we we have to hold it with an open hand. And we have to understand that godly men are on all sides. God alone knows why He put a qualification out there. And so we must trust in the Lord. You may say, well, pastor, your view is not fair. Well, look at the Old Testament. Just take it for a moment. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the priest. If they, if they had broken fingers, if they didn't have all of their body parts, if, if they were born lame, if they were born blind, they weren't allowed to participate in certain things as a priest. Now that don't seem fair to me. I know lame men who are godlier than I. I know blind men who know more Scripture than I know. Why would God withhold them from priesthood? Doesn't seem fair to me, but you know what? God doesn't always have to be fair. It's God's way and we just simply need to trust it. So this leadership role is to put there that we might be examples to the flock of God. That's why these qualifications are there. So that you as a church body can look at an individual leader and you can see a godly example that follow these qualifications. Those are the views. None of them in complete death. It's already 12 o'clock. Some of you are ready to go home. And i still got 13 more views to look at. But don't worry, we're going to fly through them. And got two more pages. I was well aware of where I'd be. So, he says also, man must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, but he also says that he must be temperate. The word here describes self-control in regards to intoxication. Now, I think he's, he's, fixed, he's about to, let me stop talking Southern, he's about to talk about being addicted to wine. And therefore, here when he says temperate, I don't think he's, he's reiterating himself. I think he's, he's talking about self-control in all things. We shouldn't eat too much. We shouldn't watch too much TV. We shouldn't do anything too much where it becomes addictive. We should have self-control and be temperate. He also says here, be prudent. This means to be well disciplined. It could mean one knows how to order his priorities. And as a leader in the church, these affect the body of believers if they're not in order. We all can work on all of these guys as leaders. Doesn't mean we're, we fulfill these perfectly. We may need to grow in how we prioritize things, and that's important. I was talking to a friend the other day. And, and, I, and I thought about this last night as I was preparing this. And he said, you know, God is the most important thing to me. And, but he said, but, but I can't find the time to study. I can't find the time to, to, to desire to do those things. And, and I said to him, when's the last time you ate? And he said, well, earlier today. I said, well, I want you to know the eating is more important to you than God is. And we just laugh because I do the same things. I stand up here and I say, prayer is so important. It's one of the most important things we can do and yet I struggle with praying. If prayer was important, guess what? I'd pray. If God was important, we'd spend time with Him. If eating's important, guess what? We're going to eat. I'm going to eat when I get out of here. It's important to me. 
And therefore, we as leaders need to prioritize our lives and so that we can show an example to the body. He also says that we must be respectable or orderly. Because unless there is order in the leaders, there will be chaos in the church. He also says that we are to be hospitable. You know, I love having strangers over to my house. People I don't know. Because it gives me an opportunity to get to know them, to hear, to learn about their struggles, and to learn their, their silly life's things that have happened. And we just laugh and we have a good time. This week I had some folks in my house and, and we ate dinner together and never really got to know them. And so boy, we just had a really good time. And so we as leaders are called to be hospitable. And it really is dealing with strangers. And then he says the elder needs to be able to teach. That doesn't mean he teaches every Sunday. That just means he's able to teach. That means he's able to rightly divide the Word of God. He says another characteristic is that the elder must not be addicted to wine. The Bible is filled with leaders that are, that are drinkers. We see it in Scripture. And boys, many, 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 many issues come out of it. And so elders must be examples to the flock. Yeah, they drank wine back then. I agree. But most of the reasons that they drank wine was for purification purposes. And historically it was eight parts water and one part wine. The, you know, many of the disciples, they didn't want to drink, but they said, no, take some wine, drink it so for the good of your stomach. So that the water didn't make you sick. But we're not to be addicted to wine. He says, don't be pugnacious. How many know what the word pugnacious means? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't look it up. Don't go knocking people out. Okay? We don't want leaders in the church that when they get an issue that they come and punch you out. That's not a good thing. I can't help but think of Gary's story all the time where he's saying there was this guy in the church and all he ever wanted to do was go out in the parking lot and fight. That's pugnacious. We don't need to be pugnacious, but instead it says be gentle, gentle and peaceable. Elders should, shouldn't be in it for the money as well. You know, there is a temptation, I'm sure, for some people to be tempted by the love of money. Now my hopes is that, that we would be preachers and leaders if we had to pay to do it. Because it's our calling, it's our desire, it's something that we've been given the desire to do. And so the Lord knows that we shouldn't be in the ministry for the cash. And it's a problem somewhere, obviously, because it's in here. But let us not. Let us make sure that we remain free from it. The second qualification list is family qualifications. It says that he must be able to manage his own household well, keep his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Elders' children are to be respectful, well-disciplined, and believers. Now, there has been a multitude of men whose qualifications have been lost because of their children. And the point that he's making here is it's very important for us to raise our children godly, to be respectful. And children will be children. Teenagers will be teenagers. But they must be respectful, well-disciplined, and believers. Titus 1.6 says, An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, and a man whose children believe and not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. The reality of this passage is if we are leaders are not able to lead our own children, our own house, there's no way we can lead the household of God. Now, I don't think an elder has to have children in the home. I don't think that's what a qualification he's saying. Some people say, well, therefore he must be married and he must have children in order to serve. That's not what he's saying. Because it's pre-assumed that they would. Now, I think that it's important that they have children that are believers because if I fail to 
to train my children in the basic things, to grow them up in the faith, to train them, to discipline them, to disciple them, to come into the kingdom of God. We are their mentors. And they're our responsibility. And God has put us in control of them. He says here, in the the last section, number three, is the elders' church's qualifications. It says, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnations occurred by the devil. And he must be a, of good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He must not be a new Christian. Some are faster growers than others. Some are slower growers. Some are seasoned, some are not so seasoned. And pride can be a major issue for a new believer that's put into the position of leadership in the place of an authority. Now when it comes to reputation, there is a time and a place in which I promise you as elders and leaders in the church will not seem like you have a good reputation. You go sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a community, you go telling them that Jesus Christ is the only way, and you will offend people and they will talk about you behind your back, they will mock you, they will tell lies about you to destroy your character. But for the most part, we as leaders should have a good reputation outside the church. Is those are the people that we need to reach. These are the people that need to be trained in the Scriptures. The devil is there awaiting, and we need to pray for this body and for the leaders in this church that we might accomplish these things through our lives as elders and pastors. These are great qualities for all of us to desire. And we should desire them to serve well in the community and in the church and as elders and and teachers and preachers. They will help us to flourish into the role that God wants us to play in His church for His glory and for His purpose. Let us pray.